Well, hey guys, like uh, he said, my name is Josh. If I haven't met you, and I'm really glad you guys are here this morning on Baptism Sunday. This is a good week. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of John, chapter 2. Uh, we use our Bibles every week, so you always want to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, there's some on the tables as you enter into the theater. Um, so John chapter 2 is where we're hanging out this morning, starting in verse 13. Um, but to start, I have a, a picture for you. I have a picture for you. A, qu- a quiz. Who, who is this? Who is that? This is the interactive point. Who is this? Who is that? Is that Jesus? That's Jesus, right? Good job. You all passed. Uh, we can leave this up, Eric, uh, Chris. I just called you Eric again, man. It's Chris, yes. Uh, pictures like this of Jesus are popular, uh, especially this one in particular. This is a very famous um, depiction of Jesus, and I'm not going to lie, there's like probably nine things in this picture that creep me out a little bit. Uh, None of the least is at least that uh, Jesus has like immaculate hands, which for a carpenter is odd. It looks like he had a, a Manny and Petty on the reg as he was in his carpenter days. Jesus has a perm in this picture. Jesus has better hair than, than all of you in this room, I'm not going to lie. I'm sorry, ladies. Jesus has better hair than you even, right? Uh, there's so many things about this picture that are just really, uh, really interesting. Jesus is white in this picture. Which, if you didn't know, Jesus is not white. He wasn't white, right? He lived in the Middle East. Like, there's so many things that are off about this sort of picture, right? But pictures like this one, hear me clearly, I am not mocking Jesus, that is for sure. But these depictions of Jesus, they have perpetuated a vision of him in our minds that can be very one-dimensional, right? These are images that we conjure up, I think, that pigeonhole Jesus as solely this sort of gentle and compassionate and lamb, cuddly, sort of teddy bear-like Jesus. And I I don't know how you view Jesus, but uh, many of us have fashioned an image of him in our mind that's like this. Maybe that is you. Um, Images like this are interesting because you would look at an image like this and you would think Jesus wouldn't even like kill a spider or something, you know, or another bug or, or a creature like that, and, and we have these fake images of Jesus. But Jesus is way more complex than the pigeonholes that we want to place him in. And our, our scripture this morning, it paints a portrait of Jesus that is so multifaceted and unique. It's compelling, it's beautiful, it's actually impressive. We actually see Jesus get angry in our passage this morning. Did you guys know that Jesus got angry? Did you know that? But unlike us, Jesus doesn't get angry because he's selfish and things aren't going his way, right? What drove him to his anger was actually great love and compassion that he had, and that's what we're gonna see. And then we see this claim that Jesus makes that honestly, if you and I fail to believe his claim, if we fail to understand his claim this morning, you will not have a heart inside of you that avoids the very things that Jesus gets angry about. So so this morning, I want us to answer two questions. If you have the paper branch notes, you'll see on the back where we're headed with this. I want us to answer two questions that this text poses to us, and it's this. What makes Jesus angry? What makes Jesus angry? And secondly, what will give me Jesus' heart? What will give me Jesus' heart? 
So again, John's Gospel, chapter 2, starting in verse 13, we see the beginning of the answer of this first question, what makes Jesus angry? It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to, the temp- to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, in the temple, which you want to circle that word potentially, that's a key word here in this story, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So, that's, that's kind of intense, right? I mean, did you see what just happened? Jesus is, I mean, whoever flipped over a table and was just being funny, right? I mean, this is a really intense scene. I mean, could you imagine going to the temple on that day, right? If you're not familiar with the Jewish temple, I actually brought you a depiction that uh, somebody has reconstructed, and thanks to Farrell Jenkins over here, copyright, this is not my photo, right? To Farrell Jenkins, thank you. Uh, but this is a depiction of what the temple in Jerusalem looked like, all right? And so in that primary position, that tall building in that center part of the temple is the Holy of Holies, Okay, only a high priest can go in there about once a year, right? It was where the presence of God dwelt. Right outside of that building is the altar where sacrifices would be made. That's where the priests would do their work. Then on the, uh, if you go a little bit further out in that other area there in the front, you have where the men would be and the women would be in Judaism. And then this entire area around that whole center part of the temple is this outer court, Okay. And there are multiple Greek words to refer to these four different dimensions of the temple. And the largest, this outermost area, is referred to as the court of the Gentiles. If you don't know what a Gentile is, it's anybody who isn't a Jewish person. So most of you in this room, okay, you're a Gentile. And the reason for this is because Gentiles were considered to the Jewish people ceremonially unclean. They weren't allowed or permitted to enter into the inner courts of the temple, which were reserved only for Jewish men. So even in the temple courts, the Gentiles are required to stand at a distance, okay? They're not allowed inside, but are allowed here in the outer court. And this outer court, that's 35 acres, right? That's a big plot of land. And it's surrounded by these giant pillars, and Jesus shows up in this area, this outer court, and it's a madhouse. This this was a place that was meant to be a place for God-fearing Gentiles to worship, and it's turned into like a farmer's market. That is if if the farmers actually brought their actual farms to the market, right? Like this is what's happening. But this is what we need to understand. It wasn't what was happening that made Jesus angry. What made Jesus angry was where it was happening. This is a common misconception about this passage, is that Jesus is angry about the what, that people are actually selling things. But he's not, he's angry about the where, okay? See, it's, it's Passover which if you don't know anything about Passover, it was like the apex of Jewish festivals. This was a time where where the Jewish people or God-fearing Gentiles, they would all go on this pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to make sacrifices in the temple. This was a time where they would remember and celebrate that God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so Jewish people came from all over for this, right? And and so if you were traveling from a distant land and you were going to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, you didn't want to haul your sacrifice the whole way there. And so when you got to Jerusalem, there'd be people there to sell you an animal that you could actually sacrifice. 
And so as time progressed, this location of where these animals would be sold kept moving closer and closer and closer to the temple. It used to be on the Mount of Olives, which is just right outside of the temple, and eventually it moved into this outer court of the Gentiles. Right, the reason for this location was obvious, right? Because the best-selling location for a sacrificial animal was close to the place of sacrifice, right? I mean, people totally understand the importance of location in sales. I mean, if you're a scalper, and your whole life is scalping uh, OSU uh, Beaver football tickets, right? Uh, it's probably not going well for you right now. It's pretty sad uh, to say. Uh, but if you were doing that, right, you're not going to set up shop in like Timber Hill on game day or in Southtown, right? You're going to go to the stadium where the action is. In the same way, the merchants in Jesus' day were not satisfied with selling just near the temple, they actually went into the temple courts to sell their product, and that's what enraged Jesus. See, what was happening is not the problem. The problem was the location. This was in the space where Gentiles were trying to worship. This is where the commotion is. I mean, just imagine if we had vendors in here this morning, just walking up and down the aisles as David's leading us in singing or as baptisms are happening later, or right now as I'm preaching and people are just yelling out, Bibles, Bibles, get your ESV Bibles or whatever, you know, I got the journaling one for you thoughtful, reflective people, you know, or, or the flower ones for you ladies, or the goatskin leather for people who want to know you have money, right, whatever, like they're sitting here up and down the aisles, like yelling out, these sort of vendors are walking in here, right, that would be very, what, distracting, be very distracting. Imagine you're a Gentile and you're trying to worship and pray and make a sacrifice. There's all these animals running around and animal noises and you're just trying not to get run over by a cow or something as you, you know, offer up praise to God or make your sacrifice for that day. See, this revealed a deep and significant heart issue for the Jewish leadership that would actually allow this to happen. I mean, at minimum, at minimum, this was horribly insensitive is all it is. But see, this lack of concern for the Gentiles was actually rooted in the fact that these Jewish leaders believed that when the Messiah would finally come, he was going to come and he was going to cleanse the temple from the Gentiles, that he was going to get those dirty, unclean people out of here. And so it's ironic that when Jesus, the actual Messiah, does come, he cleanses the temple for the Gentiles, not from the Gentiles. And in the next verse, we kind of get this window into the motives of Jesus' anger. Look in verse 16. It says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I don't, I don't know why uh, the pigeon people got hit at so hard, but Jesus just came at the pigeon people. Right out of all the animals, he came at the pigeon people, and, and we see him cleaning the temple. He's turning over tables and stuff, and the first, this is the first of two times that Jesus actually clears the temple. Jesus, he does it again just prior to his crucifixion, and in both of these situations, we are told these temple cleansings that Jesus does are motivated by zeal. They're motivated by zeal. And unless you're an English major, I'll give you the definition here. Zeal is an excessive fervor to do something or to accomplish an end. So what zeal is, it's an excessive fervor to do something or to accomplish some end. So let me give you an example. So if you have excessive fervor to eat pasta, then you probably heard about the Olive Garden Pasta Pass, 
Did you hear about this? For $100, you get a pasta pass that qualifies you to receive eight weeks of unlimited servings of pasta, sauce, and toppings from Olive Garden's never-ending pasta bowl menu, plus unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks, which is what I would be after, plus some lucky people who buy these will get an all-inclusive trip to Italy for a week, right? All for $100. If you're hearing about this for the first time, I am sorry to inform you that they only had 22,000 of these, and Olive Garden sold out of them in a half a second. (laughs) A half of a second. That is not, I'm not misspeaking, people, right? How do you calculate that? A half of a second, right? These are some zealous pasta people, all right? That is excessive fervor. But that, my friends, is a microcosm of Jesus' zeal for his Father's house. What Jesus is zealous about is not pasta, although if he ever ate at Olive Garden, he might be, I don't know. But he's zealous about God's house. And look at the place. It's chaos. They're dismissive of outsiders to their society. And Jesus is reinforcing that this place is a place of prayer. It's loud and noisy. And this is Passover, people. Passover was a very solemn assembly because it was a reminder each year of the severity of their sin. That, that it was actually the hard-heartedness that the Egyptians had that brought death to people's lives. That's how severe sin is. And here it's madness. And Jesus' anger that's driven by zeal recalls, it jogs the disciples' memory of Psalm 69, verse 9. That's what's quoted here, okay? In Psalm 69, it's a, it's a messianic psalm by King David. And what it does is it depicts King David as a righteous sufferer who has to bear the reproach of his people because King David is zealous about God's house. He's zealous about God's temple. And I just think it's so cool to watch the disciples go from just having no clue about who Jesus is and then to begin to see them make these connections. It's really interesting. They see that he is the actual true and greater David who has come to rescue his people They see that Jesus is the righteous sufferer. But Jesus, the true and better David, has a love and compassion for God that drives him to righteous anger against these Jewish leaders. Well, what is it? What is it that made Jesus so angry in John chapter 2? Well, let's just stay tethered to our text to answer that question. It was very specific to God's heart. And let's just be honest. It's sad. It's not just isolated to this point in time but it's probably tied to many of our own hearts this morning. What is he angry about? Jesus gets angry when we hinder rather than help those far from God come to him. We see Jesus getting angry when we hinder rather than help those who are far from God come to him. He's angry because they distorted one of God's great purposes for the temple. You have to follow me here. This is so important, okay? This will be on the screen. We see this in the Old Testament, Isaiah 56. Okay, let me read this. I want us to see God's heart for his temple and the type of people that God invites to this temple to worship and have a relationship with God. It says this, 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Just think about that one for a while. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that should not be cut off. Listen to this. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, which is referring to this temple, this place in Jerusalem, right? And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's the outcasts. It's the foreigner. It's the outsider. Do you see this morning? That is every single one of us. That's you. That's me. The outsiders are us. I mean, there's literally nobody in this room that is a Christian because they were so good, because they were so great, because you were so perfect and just already acceptable to God. No, we were outsiders and Christ came to us. Francis Schaeffer once said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And if I'm being honest, I can so often be indifferent and selfish and, and lacking in compassion for people who are unlike me. I could be a hindrance, potentially, to their own invitation into life with God, and I can get into places myself where I elevate myself to a position that looks down on other people. Uh, I debated prayerfully if I should tell you this, but I'm just going to decide this morning to be a little transparent with you. Because uh, I was super convicted about this this week. And uh, we just recently got this like gym membership the last few months, trying to, I'm trying to get really buff, okay? So it's not working out yet. Um, that's what I've been trying to do. Just kidding, I'm not. Um, and uh, my kids just started school, and so I'm just going to give you behind the scenes, behind the window in my brain, okay? So I've been thinking like, all right, I'm going to drop the kids off at school. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm going to take my shower, get ready there. And no joke, this week, I realized that I was struggling with that because I didn't want to take my kids to school and have, like, bedhead, right? I didn't want to be showing up to school and dropping my kids off with, like, just gym clothes on, looking like I rolled out of bed or whatever, right? And, and I, I've even thought about this at other times in my life, right? I don't want to go to the store or if I know someone's coming over, I want to be lo look presentable to people, Okay? And you can just say, Josh, you're really vain. It's probably true, I don't know. And uh, I was thinking about that, oh, I'm just really vain, like who cares? But no, I realized it wasn't because of those vain. It's because I'm prideful. I look around Corvallis, I look around the school my kids go to, and I notice there are people who look the part. They have themselves put together. 
They look like they're going somewhere. They don't look lazy. They don't look like they've just been playing video games all morning and then rolled out of bed, dropped their kids off at school and go back to playing video games. And no joke, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to go unpresentable to school because I didn't want people thinking I was one of those people. I look at people like that and I realize I think I'm better than those people. I'm looking down on those people. I'm not willing to associate with those people. Um, I'm not sure if you can relate. Um, I'm not sure who you dismiss in society or who you think you're better than. I'm not sure who you're too afraid of associating with. And because of that, you keep a safe distance from them and a safe distance really, uh, keep them at a distance from introducing them to Jesus. But as I read this story this week, I I long to have a heart like Jesus. And if we are going to help rather than hinder, then we must see the answer to this second question. We find it beginning in verse 18. It says, so the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the Jews responded to Jesus, and it's not just like every Jewish person, right? What this is referring to is the Jewish leadership. So that might be temple authorities, it might be the Sanhedrin or something. And they honestly, they ask a pretty reasonable question. Let's just be honest. They don't know Jesus. He waltzes into this outer Gentile court. He's flipping over tables and, and doing these things. And, and so they say, what sign do you give? I mean, think about it. If some random guy came in off the street this morning with a homemade whip, all right, homemade, and ran around the lobby and just flipped over like the the connect table or something, right, where you should totally go and sign up for a community group this week, okay? That would why it would be sad. We'd have some questions for him, right? Like, who is this guy? What's he doing? Why does he think he should do this? And Jesus gives an answer that honestly seems a little crazier than his actions. And his answer is really a spiritual riddle. Do you guys like riddles? Right? Do you you like riddles? I kind of like riddles. No. Okay, I'm going to force you to like riddles this morning. Okay, let's warm up to Jesus' riddle. Okay? Let's get the hang of this. I'm going to have a riddle on the screen. I want to hear the answer. Here we go. First one. There is a house... A person enters this house blind but exits seeing. What is it? The answer? No. Not optometry. Maybe, though, the answer... <laughs> that's great. School. Come on, guys. We're in a university town. You should know this. All right. Number two. Have you guys ever read the book The Hobbit? It's a great book. Bilbo and Gollum, they're playing this game of riddles where Bilbo's life is really at stake, and Gollum asks the following riddle, where he will be awarded safe passage from the tunnel if he gets it right. So literally, Bilbo's life depends on answering this riddle correctly. Don't worry, yours doesn't. 
It says, this is the riddle. This is Tolkien language, okay? So it's not what your language is like. It says, this thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws, iron, bites, steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. You guys know what it is? It's time, right? It's time. You guys use it really good, okay? Riddles, they might be dumb to you, or you might love riddles, but let's be honest, these riddles don't have a lasting effect on you, okay? Even the riddle Bilbo must answer in order to save his life, it was only fiction, correct? But the riddle Jesus gives, this spiritual riddle, you must understand because your life really does depend on it. And beyond that, your understanding of what Jesus is saying will actually shape within you a Jesus-shaped heart. What's his spiritual riddle? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jewish leaders, they don't get it. They kind of mock Jesus. They say, what are you talking about? It it took almost five decades to build this temple. How are you going to tear it down and raise it up in three? Right? They're laughing at him. They're mocking him, which it's usually pretty funny when people think they're smart and they're actually not being smart, right? They misunderstand what Jesus is saying because what is Jesus talking about? What's he talking about? What's the answer? It's his body. He's referring to his body. He's talking about his body. Guys, Jesus was the true temple that was stepping into human history. He was the center of true worship. He is the person and place that we all come to, to be reconciled to God. You guys, we don't come into this room for that. Right? You don't go off somewhere and perform some task to do that. You don't beat yourself up long enough. You don't straighten up. You don't get new friends. No, we come to Jesus for that. You see, a temple was a place of heaven and earth intersecting. That's what a temple was. It was the cosmic crossroads, if you will, where the divine resided and where the presence of the divine was mediated. The temple was the place where the gap was bridged between us and God. It was the place and location where God actually dwelled and his glory was thick and weighty and he was present there. The temple itself is a focal point where God and believers meet and it's where God accepts believers because of a bloody sacrifice. But this physical temple will be superseded by another temple, by another sacrifice. And Jesus' spiritual riddle is that claim. He is saying he is the true and better temple, but that this temple would be destroyed and reconstructed three days later. Guys, this is huge. It's huge. What was destroyed? His body. Jesus is saying, my temple is different In every other temple, you bring the sacrifice. You bridge the gap. You have human priests and animal sacrifices. You pay the price. But in my temple, I am the sacrifice. I pay the price. I am the priest. I am the altar. I am the lamb who is slain. I'm not only the God on the other side of the gap, I'm the bridge for that gap. That is Jesus' claim. No one has ever said this. No one has ever said this. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, it tells this story about this squad of army rangers who are sent on a mission to track down and rescue a really young soldier named Private Ryan. 
And preserving Private Ryan's life was very important because he was the only survivor of four brothers who fought in World War II, okay? And the U.S. government at the time, they had a policy that no family should lose all of its sons in war. So therefore, this squad was ordered to bring Private Ryan back alive. In this story, if, you, if, you've, if you've seen the movie, it shows incredible sacrifices that were made in order to save this one person. And there were many men sacrificed who sacrificed themselves in order to deliver Private Ryan to his family. And at the end of the story, the leader of the squad that saved Private Ryan was actually mortally wounded. He was killed himself, the leader of the squad. He paid the ultimate price to deliver a soldier, Private Ryan. And his dying words to Ryan were this. As he's dying, he looks at Private Ryan and he says what? Earn this. He just gave his life for a person. He looks at him and he says, earn this. So be on the screen. If you didn't know, Buddha's famous last words were this. Behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. Earn this. Work for it. And the glory of Jesus' work in securing our deliverance is a great contrast to the end of the story of Saving Private Ryan. It's also a great contrast to the final words of a man who's massively influenced Eastern thought. Because after paying the ultimate cost for our freedom, Jesus doesn't say to you this morning, earn this, just like the squad leader in Private Ryan. Rather, Jesus declares to you this morning, receive this. He doesn't say to you, work hard to gain your own salvation like Buddha. Rather, Jesus declares to you this morning, rest in my dying words on the cross. It is finished. So how does that give you a heart like Jesus? Because if, if being embraced by God isn't based on a sacrifice that you make or a price that you pay or something you earn, but if it is based upon a gift that you receive, if it's a sacrifice that's made for you and a price paid for you, guys, that cannot puff you up. That will naturally humble you. It's impossible. If you really believe that, it naturally will humble you, okay? Um, yesterday, we, a bunch of you went out and we did Restore Corvallis. Um, it was, it was a, great, uh, a great time. And my kids helped out for like 15 minutes Okay, I have very young children, if you didn't know. And uh, it was really fun, because they would like, you know, pull the weeds and stuff like that, and I would come in behind them and sort of like do the job right, you know? So they would like pull weeds and do these things, and I would come behind them and clean it up and make it look a little bit better, right? I mean, I, I guess that's debatable. I don't know how you thought of my work yesterday. But this is what I would do, right? And uh, I was thinking about that, that so many of us view our lives that way, that, that we live our life and we kind of make a little bit of a mess, and we kind of need Jesus just to come behind us and pick up the little bit of broken pieces that we've left. But we really do have a fine enough job. We just kind of need him a little bit. And I was thinking about it, if I really wanted to model Jesus to my kids yesterday, if I wanted to model what Jesus is telling us in this story this morning, I would have actually gone to Cloverland yesterday. I would have weeded that entire area. I would have pulled my kids over there, and I would have said, hey, guys, look. Look what I did. I did that for you. Now go and play. Go and play. 
That, that's what is being communicated to us. That's the heart of what is being communicated to us here. And so previously, guys, if being embraced by God actually revolved around this pilgrimage to a temple to sacrifice things for yourself, if that's how you're made right with God, if this was your paradigm of how you're related to God, it's going to puff you up. Because you're going to say, I did this. It's on me. Look how great I am. You're going to think that you're better than other people and care more about yourself and flaunt your self-justification. A system of works that allows you to recommend yourself to God based on what you do or don't do, it makes you prideful. It segregates you from other people. It makes you judgmental because you're constantly comparing how you're doing versus how other people are doing. But if you see that the greatest person the greatest one in the history of the world, the one who existed before time, if you see that he, Jesus, the Son of God, the true temple, entered into the world and says to you, you are not going to make the sacrifice. You are not going to pay the price. I will. And this temple will be destroyed because of your sin, but it will reconstruct three days later when I rise from the dead. And when that happens, I won't look to you and say, earn it. I will look to you and say, receive it. That will produce humility and gratitude in you. That will produce a heart that is inclusive to other people who don't know Jesus. That's if you see that you were an outsider and Jesus welcomed you in. If you see that he is extending grace to you, not a challenge to you to never screw up. If you see that Jesus, the true temple, is self-giving, not self-taking. If you see the greatest one becomes the least of all, you will have a heart like Jesus. You can't receive this invitation to come to Jesus knowing that Jesus should never have associated with you and then turn around and not be willing to associate with other people that make you feel uncomfortable, that, make, that kind of like rock the boat in your life a little bit, who aren't like you, who, who you don't understand, who, who don't give you social brownie points in the circles you want to thrive in. Because you won't care about those who don't know Jesus if you don't see how Jesus went to extraordinary lengths so that you would experience his embrace. See that this morning. Jesus' zeal consumed him. It consumed him to death. His zeal wasn't selfish. It, was an effort to exert, it wasn't an effort to exert controlling behavior. It was a consuming zeal that was self-giving, self-denying, and selfless. There's no one like Jesus. There is no king like Jesus. There is no God like our God. He doesn't take. He gives. He doesn't say work. He says it's finished. He is completely and utterly unique. He is the self-giving temple. He's the sacrificial king. 